0: This podcast is sponsored by Canaccord Genuity Wealth Management, award-winning wealth managers who go above and beyond to support and guide you. Visit candowealth.com to start building your wealth with confidence.
1: Hello and
2: welcome to the edition podcast from The Spectator. Every week we take a look at some of the most important and intriguing stories from the issue with the writers behind them. I'm Lara Prendergast, the Spectator's Executive Editor.
0: And I'm William Moore, the Spectator's Features Editor.
2: This week, what does Putin really want for Russia?
0: Plus, should there be women-only spaces on trains?
2: And finally, why do old men like stripping off? First up, the recording you're about to hear was made on Wednesday afternoon, Since then, Vladimir Putin has launched missiles at various targets throughout Ukraine. We hope that this recording is still of interest to listeners as a record of the different positions prior to Putin's invasion. For this week's cover story, Neil Ferguson writes about how Putin seems to be trying to recreate the Russia of the past, while in his diary, Timothy Garton-Ash says the West has misunderstood Putin's intentions. Neil joins us now, along with Timothy and Mary Djevsky, a columnist for The Independent. Neil, you write our cover story this week and you say in your piece that a common assertion is that Putin is hell-bent on resurrecting the Soviet Union, but you also point out that it is in fact the Tsarist Russian Empire that Putin seems more keen on resurrecting. How exactly does Ukraine fit into this plan?
3: Well, back in July, Putin published a quite lengthy pseudo scholarly article on the historic unity of the Russian and Ukrainian peoples. And that was when I knew he was planning invasion. The, the key to understanding Putin is, I think, to look past the Soviet legacy. A lot of Western commentators make the mistake of thinking that this is all about reassembling the Soviet Union. But I don't think that's right. If you look carefully at, at Putin's whole approach it's much more about resuscitating the tsarist empire and in that sense he's much more peter the great than stalin and from the vantage point of of 18th century russian history it makes sense he he's said he said it in an interview to lionel Barber a few years ago that peter the great's his hero well peter the great's kind of moment of of triumph the moment that he established russia as a great power in in europe was was a moment in Ukraine, the Battle of Poltava in 1709. That's really what this is about, much more than the reassembly of of the USSR.
2: And with, with that in mind, what, I mean, what do you think comes next?
3: Well, I've been saying since the beginning of the year that Putin plans invasion of Ukraine. I don't think it's annexation necessarily. It could be partition. He's certainly going to launch a large-scale offensive very soon to destroy ukraine's military capability i i think he will hope to topple the zelensky government and replace it with a more pliant one which will then be forced to sign a peace treaty and that peace treaty could very well involve significant territorial sessions to russia alternatively he may simply leave ukraine as it is and be content with it as a as it was before 2014 as a corrupt satrapy run by somebody who kisses the Muscovite ring. It's hard to read exactly where the end state is, but but that he's going to escalate in the coming days and weeks seems to me 80% probable. I find it very hard to imagine him stopping here.
2: Timothy, you write this week's diary for The Spectator, and, and you begin by saying that we might be standing on the verge of the largest war in Europe since 1945. How likely do you think war is at this stage?
4: Well, we already have a war going on. I mean, and and Ukraine has had a war on its territory continuously since 2014. Um, Unlike Neil, I really don't think we uh, know because I'm not sure he knows exactly what he's going to do next. What we do know is that he wants to restore as much as possible of the Russian Empire, of Russian greatness. Of the Russian sphere of influence. I think he'd be quite happy to have the Soviet Union and the Soviet bloc back. I think he's deeply informed by Catherine the Great, as well as Peter the Great. I met him in 1994, and he was already talking about parts of Russia that were no longer inside the Russian Federation. He mentioned specifically the Crimea. Um, when he met George W. Bush in 2008, he said, George, what you've got to understand is Ukraine isn't even a country so I think that's the general direction of travel is very clear. But the question is, if it's still the cold, calculating real politica that we've seen for many years, then he will take it step by step. So I think it's entirely possible he'll stop for a bit at the line of control where the trenches are in Donetsk and Lugansk, and then maybe try and take the whole of the oblasts of the provinces of Donetsk and Lugansk, and see what the Western reaction is. It's also possible he'll do the big one and try to go for Kiev.
1: I actually disagree with both the eminent speakers. I don't think that Putin has the slightest ambition to restore either the Russian Empire or the Soviet Union. I think he was certainly about, in a a sort of vaguely um, pale Trumpist way, making Russia great again, but not about the expansion of territory. I think that Crimea was a very special case. And I know, know an enormous amount has been made about Putin's essay, his disquisition on Russia and Ukraine from last July, some of which he actually sort of reproduced in his address to the nation earlier this week. I just feel that that article was hugely misinterpreted, that a gigantic leap was made from saying Ukraine has never really been a proper nation, that Ukrainians and Russians are one people, that a leap has been made from that to say Ukraine should somehow be reabsorbed into Russia or that Ukraine has no right to exist as an independent state. Putin is on record several times as saying that he and Russia recognise Ukraine as an independent, sovereign state, and I don't think that's going to change.
2: Timothy, do you want to respond to that?
4: Um, yes, so I mean, the poet James Fenton had a great line which said, don't listen to what they say, listen to what they do. So let's listen to what Putin has done. He started in 2008 by taking two chunks out of Georgia, Uh, which he's now effectively incorporated into Russia. Then you have the incorporation of Crimea. Then you have Donetsk and Lugansk. I think it's very hard to deny that this man has old-fashioned territorial ambitions. But it's also worth saying, because this, this, this we haven't mentioned, his other great fear is not about history or national grandeur, It is having a functioning, democratic, attractive Ukraine just next door to Russia, because ultimately he wants to stay in power. And his great fear, which goes back to the Orange Revolution in 2004-05, is not that Western tanks are rolling onto his lawn, but that Western democracy is coming his way, and that will in the end prove attractive to his own people, which, of course, it would.
1: Can I just jump in here? Because I actually reject both those theses, too, because I don't think that the, 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 the idea of having a successful Ukraine next door is something that's particularly worrying to Putin. What's worrying about Ukraine is that from Russia's perspective, it appears an unstable state and Russia is Russia's prime concern is its security. I also worry about this this preoccupation. Hang on, Mary, hang on, hang on. on, on. The reason Ukraine
3: is unstable is because of Russia. I mean, Ukraine's inability to stabilise economically has a lot to do with the fact that Russia, as Tim earlier said, invaded uh, Ukraine and has maintained a low-level but nevertheless meaningful conflict in eastern Ukraine since 2014. Russian state television is running pictures, maps that effectively imply the partition of Ukraine right now. So let's not pretend that this isn't an all-out assault on Ukraine's sovereignty. Whatever the motivation, whether it's nostalgia for Tsarist empire, or simply to prevent Ukraine being a successful democracy, it's clear to me, and it's been clear since last summer, that Putin intends to destroy Ukraine's sovereignty. It may leave Ukraine formally an independent state, but he will not be content until it is under his tutelage. That's clear.
1: Well, I think that Russia rather sees the, sees the destabilizing element in Ukraine as being what. Putin certainly saw, and most of the um, Russian hierarchy saw, as Western meddling in 2014, which led to a coup against an elected government. That's how they view it. I'm not going to listen to this it.
3: kind of Russian propaganda on a Spectator podcast. That's complete nonsense. And, and I'm sure Tim would agree with me.
1: Well, I'm outnumbered, but I'd also like to take on your your, your previous premise, which, which is about this business of the pattern of behaviour. So often, I mean, how often have I heard this term, the pattern of behaviour? And it seems to me that, that actually there is no pattern of behaviour other than Russia's preoccupation with its own security and its fear that its security is being jeopardised. When you look at all these instances, Georgia, not started by Russia, started by Georgia, Crimea special one-off that russia risked losing
2: its its naval base in crimea timothy i wanted to ask you about the sanctions you write in your diary that you're not to put it mildly a fan of boris johnson but you, you write in praise of his speech at the security conference what what do you make of the sanctions that have so far been imposed the
4: sanctions that he's announced so far are very feeble i think that we should be throwing the kitchen sink in terms of sanctions at vladimir putin right now it's our last chance and here I agree with Neil. It's our last chance to prevent him advancing further. You know, in, in, in the British announcement, only three oligarchs are sanctioned. They've already been sanctioned by the US. This Truss slightly sort of gave the game away, I think foolishly, by saying, well, we've got to keep something in the locker for his next move. And that, I'm afraid, exposes the weakness of the Western position. If you face a power which has no scruples about using massive military force and you're only prepared to use economic and diplomatic instruments, you're at a great disadvantage. There's a great old Polish saying, we play chess with them, they play kick-ass with us. And that's what I'm really afraid of, that in the end our locker will be empty, we'll have applied the massive sanctions, Putin has built up more than $600 billion in central bank reserves. He's prepared for the sanctions Will throw at him. He's going to make countermeasures. And my greatest fear is that he's going
3: to, at least in the short term, get away with it.
2: Neil, would you agree with that?
3: Yeah, <laughs> Boris uh, is far behind the curve on this, and it was extraordinarily unfortunate to imply that one had to take into account the interests of the City of London. If that means that London's going to continue being the uh, clearinghouse for uh, Russian money, then it's a shameful, shameful thing to say. Right now, the Germans are out in front of the UK, having finally belatedly cancelled Nord Stream uh, 2, the pipeline designed to bypass Ukraine. The US uh, has certainly signalled tougher sanctions. Broadly speaking, Britain should not be behind at this point because really, if you look back over the last decade, Britain has been more willing to take on Putin than the continental Europeans. It's absurd at this stage when it's so obvious that Putin intends large-scale aggression against Ukraine for Britain to be lagging behind. But I agree with Tim, sanctions were never going to deter Putin. And I said this back when I was last in Kiev in September, that the only thing that could deter him would have been a significant reinforcement of Ukraine's military capability. But unfortunately, we chose the sanctions route, The Biden administration actually eased off on Russia. For example, it it took off sanctions on, on Nord Stream 2. And here we are with the entirely predictable outcome that Ukraine, having been denied NATO membership, denied EU membership, not even given a whiff of a chance of those in the future, is now completely isolated and at the mercy of a militarily far superior Russia.
2: Mary, just to finish on, we've, we've obviously seen an outcry from the West at Putin's latest moves. Do you have any sense about how in Russia people are feeling about their leaders' recent decisions? It's actually very
1: hard to gauge Russian opinion. Um, polls that have been conducted, say, in the last few months have suggested that there is a big... Swathe of opinion that's very opposed to embarking on any sort of new military adventure um, anywhere, least of all almost in Ukraine, because many Russians have friends, relatives in Ukraine or Ukrainian friends and relatives in Russia. It would be a very complicated conflict to fight from that point of view. There has been a suggestion that Putin's nationwide broadcast this extraordinary rambling account of Russian-Ukrainian relations earlier this week, that this may have actually softened up opinion slightly towards some sort of action against Ukraine. But I think military action for any Russian leader, including Putin, is a very dangerous prospect. And my view is that if Putin were to undertake that and if it were to go wrong then Putin's position would be jeopardised.
3: Mary, I'm so glad you said something there that I agree with.
2: (laughs) Glad you found some common ground. Neil, Mary and Timothy, thank you very much for joining us.
0: Next up, should Britain have women-only train carriages? Jeremy Corbyn suggested it when he was Labour Party leader, and now Scotland seems to be flirting with the idea. Mary Wakefield says in this week's Spectator that although she enjoys the idea of the lady carriage, it doesn't make much sense. She joins us now along with women's rights activist Kelly Given. Mary. Yes, Will. In your column this week, you write about the idea for women only train carriages. Yes. Can you explain for our listeners why you think the argument for them doesn't hold up?
5: I think that neither the argument for them nor the argument against really hold up. I think they've been suggested over the years as a solution to the idea that women are harassed in train carriages. And my problem really is with the idea that women are harassed in train carriages. I'm actually kind of rather partial to the idea of a women's-only carriage. As I say, in my mind's eye, it's a rather lovely thing, kind of with muted tones and, you know, perhaps a better quality of food. But I just don't think we should be trying to solve problems that don't exist when there's so many real problems and real violence that women
2: face in other parts of society. Kelly, you're based in Edinburgh. Can you tell us a little bit about your own experience of travelling on ScotRail and whether you think women-only carriages are a good idea?
6: Yeah, I think actually... Mary and I have a lot of similar views in the sense that I don't think that there's really that strong an argument for or against. And I don't think that those arguing for them are actually arguing for them in the way that we think we're going to solve violence against women and girls by implementing these carriages. I don't think that's the case. My experience of public transport, particularly at night, is not good. In fact, the last twice that I have travelled at night time... On a train, I have been harassed by men and I refuse to actually use the train at night time, especially on my own. The last twice that I was on a train, I was with a friend and that didn't stop what happened. So yeah, my experience is not great, especially as an autistic person as well. My experience of public transport generally isn't fantastic. And I by no means think that this is a a be all and end all answer to violence against women. I don't think it is, but I think if it even helps a handful of women to feel safer. I don't think it actually objectively makes women safer at all. I don't think uh, a carriage that says no men allowed is going to stop a violent man from coming onto a carriage and, and hurting a woman. I don't think that's the case, but I do think that it would give peace of mind to a handful of women. And if that is the case, then it's worth it to me.
5: Do you think in any way, I mean, the answer might be no here, but if, say you had a women's only carriage. I would worry that would make women feel less safe in the other carriages. So because in my experience, I haven't found there to be much of a problem traveling on a train. And this is very particular to my experience on a particular line. So I understand everyone's different. But if I saw like one carriage saying, you know, women's sort of safe coach, I think I'd feel less safe on the other coaches. Because I would be think, well, there must be a massive problem.
6: Yeah. And I think that you're absolutely entitled to that. I think there's merit in that argument. Like I say, I don't think there's strong arguments either way. But I do think that the fact that you would feel more unsafe in a mixed carriage speaks volumes about what we are actually up against on public transport.
5: What was, um, if, if you don't mind me asking, what was your experience? Because my argument really is just that, at least on the line I go on, there's an awful lot of drunk men and I found over the years that I don't find them to be dangerous, certainly uncomfortable with a bit of chat and comments and stuff like that, but it's not what I would count as an assault, especially relative to the sorts of things that you know go on in other places. Yep. Do you think that's fair of me or am I being too blasé about what I consider just
6: chat? I think it's much broader. I think there are there is a stereotype, I think, of men on trains and drunken men and drunken groups of men. I personally don't feel particularly threatened by them, but on the same token, I don't not feel threatened by them. I feel more threatened by them than I would a group of women, for example. My experience, particularly the last one that I had, last train that I took at night, a man sat beside me on an empty carriage, uh, me and my friend, and I had tights on and he said, He could see my tattoos through my tights, and that he liked them. He asked me what colour of nail varnish I had on my toes. He asked me really inappropriate questions that were designed to make me feel uncomfortable, and he did make me feel that way. And when I left the train, I had to walk a different way because he was going the same way as me, and that made me feel very uncomfortable, and it did make me feel unsafe. Yeah, yeah, I I do think that that's an experience that isn't uncommon, but I think it really depends on how you look at it and and what groups you're thinking of. I think. There's no one type of man that is violent towards a woman. Violence against women comes in all sorts of different forms. I don't think we can pigeonhole it to any type of one person on the train.
2: Mary, I mean, you talk in your piece about whether there are certain men that could do with the, their own kind of carriage. What, what, well, what, I think what's just, that's just
5: one of the um, arguments against women's only carriages is that it's also you know, a certain sort of man who's threatened by macho behaviour or physical assault and that sort of thing. So you're trying to make women feel uncomfortable. Why not make other men feel uncomfortable? And I think it all gets, it sort of proliferates. But I think what you say about your experience is fascinating because I think the trouble with what Jenny, is she called Gilruth? the transport? Yes, yes Jenny thing. Gilruth. Yeah. I think the trouble with what she said was that she said that groups of drunk men made her feel uncomfortable. And I don't myself think that is the problem. That is a cultural thing. And I think we've got to be careful of you know, just trying to get rid of macho culture, rather than focusing on predators of the sort who sat next to you, which I think of as a much more particular and individual kind of Yeah. Uh,
0: Mary, uh, you do mention in your piece that there are, other, there are countries which have already introduced women owning carriages, yeah. such as India and Japan. Do you think that there, there's a need for the carriages in those countries, that there, there isn't in...? Oh yeah,
2: sure. Like in, and I think women love them in. Yeah. I actually lived in Delhi and went on those women only carriages yeah. and they were actually quite nice but the, the underground which is where they have them in Delhi often is, is much less busy than the other, yeah, other yeah. trains but it's, it's quite yeah. a nice experience yeah. but I'm, I you know I, well the women's only
5: carriages are less yeah, busy yeah. Much,
2: oh, yeah, yeah much less busy and generally so nicer mean, to be honest yeah.
5: when well, the photos you see there I mean, it, the, the carriages are potentially absolutely rammed and, you know like I say I don't think any woman's hasn't had the experience of someone kind of rubbing up against them in a crowded place I mean which is feels extremely offensive and disgusting and but I don't think again that's a problem of a, a bunch of drunk guys on a on a railway train
0: and Mary if if women's only carriages ever did become a reality even if you think it's a, yeah. a bit of a silly idea if it ever did happen yeah would you use
5: them absolutely I can't wait <laughs>
2: <laughs> definitely yeah I mean, yeah, as How saying, much space do you think should be given over? A whole whole thing? I'm talking trains, here. <laughs> buffet
5: cars. I don't know. Yeah, definitely. I, I mean, I just, I just don't want us to be obscuring the, you know, serious problems by seeming to focus on a kind of macho drinking culture that I'm not sure is the problem.
6: I would tend to agree with the the, the thing about the drinking culture. I think that's it almost minimises the issue that women and girls face in terms of violence against women. I think we're not talking about drunk men, we're talking about, you know, a 63% increase on sexual harassment and sexual offences on public transport. That is a serious issue. And I, again, I don't think that this is a be all and end all. I don't think it's going to solve anything. I don't think it's even going to make women safer. But I think it will give some women peace of mind to travel. And that is my argument for it, that, you know, you're not forced to go on it, no one's forcing you to use it. It's just an option, and it should be presented as an option if it helps women to feel safer.
5: Yeah, and it it starts the conversation about, you know, conversation we need to have.
6: Yeah, absolutely.
0: Thank you, Mary, and thank you, Kelly. And finally, Cosmo Landersman believes that once men reach a certain age, they quite enjoy taking their clothes off, no matter where. He has written about his theory in this week's magazine, and he joins us now, along with Andrew Welsh from British Naturism. Cosmo, in The Spectator this week, you write about nudity as the entitlement of age. Why is it, do you think, that uh, older men enjoy getting their clothes off?
7: I think one of the things is that you reach a certain age and you just sort of feel kind of, well, what the hell, why not? There's a kind of new liberating indifference to other people's expectations and it's a part of a new informality you have, you're at ease with your body, you're not so vain, you're not worried about these things, and it sort of feels good, and why not? And if they don't like it, that's too bad. That's basically, I think, how it works.
2: Andrew, you're the commercial manager for British Naturism, and you're joining us via Zoom at the moment in the nude. Do you agree with Cosmo that it tends to be older men who like to be in the nude?
8: No, I don't. I I completely agree with all that he said, but I I don't think we should polarise this by age. Uh, Perhaps we do polarise it very slightly by gender, but I think women do have a a lot more fear of of judgement... Uh, let's put it that way, there's a whole variety of uh, things going on there that uh, perhaps we men don't suffer from. Um, but no, I mean, naturism is a very popular thing around the world and it's practised by everybody from nappies to nineties, is uh, is what I say, even though the people in the nappies aren't necessarily naked, but you get the point. So no, but I think it's right. And I, I do think it's an age thing, whatever gender you're talking about. There's that poem, isn't there, about, uh, you know, when I'm old, I shall wear purple or something. And it is like, you know, this is me, uh, and that's how I feel comfortable, and I'm a human being, and so why not?
7: But I, I, I'm also writing about men who are not nudists, you know, who don't, aren't a part of nudist society, who actually now feel very open about, on occasion, you know, going nude, whereas one time they would have felt very inhibited. Right? I think that's different. And I think women who aren't nudists, don't do it because, well, you know, they they're often, you know, more self conscious as as they grow up. So I think that's one of the key differences.
0: Do you think it's something that in Britain people are particularly uptight about it, or is it is it more common and popular in other countries?
7: The old image that we had of the British was yes, very uptight. You know, the part of the line of no sex, please. We're British. There was a big kind of anxiety about nudity, but I think over the years. Britain as a society has become much more open, a much more let it hang out, a much more informal, you know, do it if you enjoy it sort of uh, idea. So I I think we've, we've become less and less inhibited about nudity. And what do you agree
8: with that, Andrew? Yes, um, I, I do agree. And I think I want to say at this point, yes, I am a naturist, a card carrying naturist, not quite sure where I carry my card, but I am. Um, and that's what I like to do. And if I swim or I go camping or on holiday, I will try very hard. And it's actually very easy these days to find a place where clothes are not needed. But actually what we're talking about here is something that is available and practised by us all. Every single one of us on this, uh, this podcast has had a shower today, at least I hope so. Uh, and And we are naked for that, you know, so the label is sometimes a bit unhelpful. Uh, Cosmo, you're saying, you know, men who are not nudists, we tend to call it naturists in this country, but, you know, it doesn't matter. That's the point. We are all human beings and decades of social convention... That's the problem. Has told us that you know we need to be modest. I must look that up in the dictionary one day and see what it really means. Because you know we are all human beings, and we're also concerned about ourselves the whole time. And, and it's not right. So whether you are a yeah, matrix- but hold
7: on, I've got to challenge this, this, this idea that somehow it's perfectly natural, and it's only because of our repressed Jude. Christian society that we, are, we have these inhibitions. That's not true. If you look at a lot of anthropological studies and so-called what we called in the old days primitive societies they didn't walk, walk, walk around completely naked. They covered up. It's a very ancient, long established rule across cultures.
8: Yes, I, I don't disagree with you but let's look at the reasons for why they would cover up. A lot of it will be for comfort because it's cold <laughs> or, or even it's very hot and you need protection from the sun. I, I don't know enough about the subject you know, to say when it was that we, the ape man, lost his hair, um, because one of the reasons why so many of our our animal friends are are, are not wearing clothes is because they just don't need to. We often say about clothes, it's that they are in- invented to keep you warm and to keep you dry, and that's really all that you need them for. Yes, they might bestow a certain uh, status. Uh, you might wear a black tie to go to a funeral. You might wear your best suit to go to a a job interview. But basically, they are there to keep you warm and dry, and you. Don't Don't always need
2: that. Andrew, what age were you when you first discovered your interest in naturism, and and what was it that kind of drew you to it?
8: Um, I was once asked, uh, when was I first naked in public? And I said, when I was very first born, because uh, that's another issue, isn't it? That's how we all entered this world. Um, I-, I was with my family on a holiday in the west coast of France uh, in, a, uh, in a, uh, a campsite where you wore your clothes. But basically, you reached the beach, and it was one of those lovely, long Atlantic beaches with the breakers coming in, and to the left, people had swimsuits on, and to the right, they didn't. And, um, you know, we were sort of somewhere around about the middle, but it just appealed to me. And some years later, when I was on a holiday... Uh, of my own when I was an adult, uh, there was a nude beach that was recommended, and i went and um well, here I am, x number of years later, still waxing lyrical about it
0: and uh Cosme, do you think uh, nudity is is totally harmless, or do you think that because there are people obviously who are very offended by it? Uh, do you think that the people who are offended by nakedness uh, have a point
7: it 's all context isn 't it I'm, i I think you know nudity's fine, I think there has to be a bit of you know uh common courtesy i think there has to be tact i don't i don't think it's If it makes people very uncomfortable, if there are children around, I think you have to, you know, it isn't all about your right to go naked. I think the case that I referred to in my piece about the admiral who was reported on by his neighbour, I think that was an incredible outrageous thing. The man was in his own area, in his own garden, and he went naked. I thought there was a big fuss over nothing. I think most people supported him. You know,
8: we're not convinced that people are as offended Uh, as they think they will be offended. Sometimes they're offended on somebody else's behalf. That's a very British thing, isn't it? Um, But actually, it's more about surprise. Uh, You know, if you went to a beach and you saw somebody sunbathing wearing a clown costume, uh, you would consider that to be unusual behaviour. You might not be offended, but you would be surprised. So, yes, if you are in a public place and somebody has no clothes on, it perhaps surprises you. But the number of activities that British naturism put on that are in public venues, hotels, campsites, the staff are still there serving us with their clothes on and they think we are the nicest people they look after. Now, you can challenge that one, but I tell you that's what they say. And by the end of our weekend or our week, they're quite worried about this rabble that are coming in wearing their clothes who are going to be less friendly, less welcoming, less, less nice to them, really. Um, so Naturism in the UK, yes, we're an organisation that's about to celebrate 60 years of existence, but uh, Naturism as, a, as an activity, a, a conscious activity, taking a clothes off to a feel that the fresh air and the, the breeze and the sunshine on your skin is uh, coming up for around 100 years old.
7: But you're not really getting the younger crowd, are you?
8: Um. Yes, and no. There are plenty of younger people. Um. I know you went to one of our events, and thank there you. There were for no that.
7: Young people there. I can tell you, you. absolutely. But that <laughs> I was young.
8: That's I, I know. I, I'm. I'm still at the the younger end, and I'm 472. No, I. It, you're right. But I think I think that pervades society. There are things that older people get into, and things that younger people get into. There can be a crossover. You should come to some of our events when you know the average age plummets you know because we do have families we and do we have just younger invite people. me and in, i'll do yeah, that we will do that because it's great great fun so yes uh, it, but it's just one of those things you know we tend also to be relatively white and relatively male in our makeup but that's not to say that we're not diverse it's just not in the same volume um it's something we're working on we appointed an equalities and diversity officer earlier this year we have a an LGBTQ <laughs> person earlier this year but-
7: I, want to, I, want to expect, I think what's very interesting, what has happened, is there's, there has been a kind of cultural shift now where in the old days, if you, you, know, you kept your clothes on, you were doing the right thing. I think it's moved much more to if you're very you know, keen about your clothes and what stuff and don't get naked, you're a little bit uptight. There's something, you know, what's kind of wrong with you now? So I think it, and it's, changed, it's the non nudists who I think are a little more suspect now fantastic i'm really glad to hear that i shall uh, yeah yeah
8: i'm gonna put that on the front page of our website later but but you're not wrong you know things are shifting you know the taboos are eroding that that difficult dinner party conversation that we might have had in the 1980s where somebody said you do what you know nowadays people say we've done that or I'd love to do that. I think that's what's happening. And I hope you've got a better dinner
7: parties than I do. That's I did. all I can say.
8: <laughs> <laughs> but, you know, because, uh, well, of course, the conversation comes around to what do you do for a living? So I have to say, but, you know, the thing is, people are much more in tune with it. And I think what they're getting is the health benefits, the fact that it's great food fun you know it it helps your emotional health your mental health your physical health you just feel I mean it's such a cliche to say you shrug off your clothes and you shrug off your woes but I could find you 500 people this afternoon that would agree with me on that you know
2: Andrew what would be your advice for spectator listeners and readers who might be thinking about getting into naturism but aren't quite sure what the first step should be
8: Okay, well, there's a, there's a number of things to say. I think, first of all, let's sort of lose that label a little bit. You don't have to suddenly become a naturist, you know. Next time you're on holiday, try a nude beach. Um, if you feel that you're somebody that is very self-conscious, walk around your, your house with, with no clothes on. You know, when the weather gets better, sit in the garden with no clothes on. It's perfectly legal to do so. Check out bn.org.uk and you'll find a whole variety of activities. There's naked dining, that's what Cosmo did. There's naked garden visits. We're working with British Heart Foundation on some sponsored walks, naked heart walks around the country. So the best thing is just to try. It's a little bit like the sticking plaster. You know, you will feel 10 minutes of vulnerability, 10 minutes of, oh my goodness, why did I agree to come? Um, And after a while, again, this might sound like a complete fabrication, but you will completely forget that you have no clothes on and that everybody around you has no clothes on and hopefully you'll say I can't wait to do this again
0: That's excellent, Andrew and uh, Cosmo thank you very much indeed for joining us
2: And that's it for this week If you've enjoyed the episode why not subscribe to The Spectator to read the articles we've discussed on the podcast If you subscribe today you'll also get a £20 Amazon gift voucher Just go to spectator.co.uk forward voucher I'm Nara Prendergast
0: And I'm William Moore, and do join us again next week.